Hello, welcome to another COVID-19 Law and Policy Briefing produced by Public Health Law Watch, a George Consortium initiative housed at Northeastern University School of Law. Thank you to our co-sponsors, the Center for Public Health Law Research at Temple University, the Network for Public Health Law, and Change Lab Solution. We are here to provide expert legal analysis during the COVID-19 pandemic and hopefully to answer some of your questions. For more information on the legal response to COVID-19, please check out our report, Assessing Legal Responses to COVID-19 at www.covid19policyplaybook.org. Please use the hashtag COVIDLawBriefing for any questions or comments in response to the briefing. I am Rakaya Yerby, a professor of law and member of the Center for Health Law Studies at St. Louis University School of Law, as well as executive director and co-founder for the Institute for Healing Justice and Equity at St. Louis University. Joining me today are Dr. Evan Anderson, who teaches health policy at University of Pennsylvania School of Nursing and Medicine, while his primary institutional home at Penn is the Center for Public Health Initiatives. And Dr. Michael Sinha is a research fellow at Harvard-MIT Center for Regulatory Science, Harvard Medical School, and visiting scholar at the Center for Health Policy and Law at Northeastern University School of Law. Today, to get started, I'm going to begin by asking Dr. Anderson, should a Biden administration simply nationalize one or more PPE industries to address the shortages? Oh, thank you so much for that question. And thank, thank you to the organizers of this, uh, this talk. And thanks for my interlocutors here. So that's a great question. I think that's a question that's on many people's minds and uh, been a question we've talked about a lot in the last um, seven or eight months. And I think the, the, the answer that I would give is that uh, probably not. It's a, you know, the Defense Production Act is um, an important tool, uh, but it seems pretty clear to me that um, it's it's not easy to necessarily just force industry to produce more. Uh, these days, production is a lot more complex and supply chains are a lot more complex than they were in World War II. I think the right use of the Defense Production Act, and it's something that's been um, you know terribly missing in during the Trump administration, um, has been the use of purchase guarantees. So basically, the federal government um, committing to buying a lot of different PPE. Um, and in that way, it removes the risk for producers so that producers know that they can invest in the capital to make more masks, to make more gowns, and that they won't be exposed um, to huge losses if three or four months from now, once they've actually scaled up capacity, if we're no longer in this moment of great need, you know, that can be an enormous financial strain on companies. That's something we've seen in the recent history. So during the um, swine flu um, crisis in 2009, um, one company in particular invested a lot in capital investments, uh, and it pushed that company to the brink of bankruptcy after because you know, once they were scaled up, there was no longer demand. So, you know, I think purchase guarantees, um, purchase commitments is one really important tool. And then just coordination. So invoking the DPA so that the federal government plays an overarching coordinating role uh, in the crisis is essential. Um, but sort of forcing companies is probably not likely to be as successful. 
level. So the DPA has an important role to play. Um, nationalizing industries, I, I would I would um, argue, is probably not the, the most important use of the authorities. Now, turning to you, Dr. Sinha, uh, hospitals are filling up. We will reach a crisis soon. So what will winter bring in terms of PPEs um, and hospital care? Yeah, there's a number of things to think about in terms of hospital care. Uh, we're, we're already at a point where hospitals are filling up in large cities, uh, in rural areas. Uh, some states are, are finding that if they need to try to transfer their patients to other hospitals in the region, those beds are also full. Uh, we're, we're already at a crisis. And so I would frame it in, in two different ways. I would think about first the, the resources like PPE. These are commodities that can be purchased, that can be acquired. Uh, there certainly is a shortage. Uh, there are certainly ways that we probably could have increased production much, much earlier, talking seven, eight months ago. Uh, but I think the real crisis right now is the crisis of personnel. So we're actually seeing a shortage of nurses, physicians that are able to take care of COVID-19 patients. You're seeing radiologists, pediatricians being put on the front lines treating adult patients with COVID-19, some of whom have not been in that type of setting in years. Uh, a lot of people, especially on Twitter, talking about, you know, that, that they're ready to quit. They're at their wits end. This is too much for them. Uh, so I think what we need right now is to realize that it's not just about the number of beds and the number of ventilators, but it's about supporting the personnel that are required to operate that equipment, to visit that bedside, to take care of those patients. And we're really at a breaking point right now. Uh, I think the, the one thing that's missing from uh, President-elect Biden's COVID-19 task force is mental health. I think that that's something that we have to think about when we think about not only the mental health of patients and families, because obviously that that is so important. You, you're seeing loved ones uh, being intubated, saying goodbye via Zoom or via FaceTime. You know, that's, that's a complete tragedy. But you're also seeing that same uh, emotional stress and uh, breakdown among first responders, among clinicians on the front line. And just to follow up, um, you mentioned that what is missing from Biden's team is a focus on mental health. So what do we need to do to address this issue to support these healthcare providers? Yeah, so I, I think we do have a lot of physicians who are not trained as critical care physicians. They're not trained as hospitalists, cardiologists, you know, the, those that are traditionally on the front line. And I think it's important to realize that a psychiatrist may be better suited to do something else than suit up and go room to room treating COVID-19 patients. That we can mobilize and uh, and gain, you know, really get a whole system going where it's not just we have to go bed to bed, we have to do the following things, but it's what do we do when this aspect of our system starts breakdown? Coming back to you, uh, Evan, let's talk about uh, the supply chain and regulation and burn rate for in uh, 95s. They're a lot different them for gowns and ventilators or syringes? Do different experiences in addressing shortages of different products yield any insights into how we should think about the potential value and limits of federal policy levers? Oh, it's a great question. So um, one of the many challenges with this crisis is that we've experienced shortages in lots of different products. And those products are manufactured, distributed, regulated, and used in very different ways. So it, you know, it sort of runs against this idea that 
the BPA can be wielded bluntly. It's, it's really a scalpel that needs to be used um, as a way to coordinate, not just sort of production uh, and, and distribution, but also expertise. And we've had a number of false starts where we've made huge investments. Um, you know, ventilators would be one where, and this has been covered quite a bit in the press, where we spent hundreds of millions of dollars for ventilators, which um, didn't have the features that were actually really important for them to have be effective right away. And, you know, sort of um, dub- doubly um, um, problematic, maybe, um, they weren't built in a way where we haven't needed as much ventilators as we expected, but that would be okay if they just went into the strategic national stockpile. But these these don't have a long shelf life. So, you know, part of the coordination problem has also been marshalling expertise at the point of procurement. And, and that's something we can do a lot better. I also just um, want to stick in another point here, though, to this idea about PPE. Um, you know, we're at a moment right now where, you know, I think the Biden administration has indicated it's it's really going to um, aggressively try to support schools and reopening, which I think is a great idea. You know, this will intensify shortages of PPE. It's going, we're going to need more masks to support teachers teachers. And that's something we need to, to keep in mind um, as, as really important. And some of those, I think some of the same uh, mental health concerns and equity concerns, um, you know, are, are um, you know, they're present in, in very acute um, in school settings as well. Right. And just as you mentioned, when we think about the need for additional PPE, we haven't even uh, given out enough in particular areas where people are being infected, right, in nursing homes and meat and poultry processing plants. I want to turn back to you, Michael, to talk about as we shift the discourse between sort of hospitals and treatment to focus more on vaccines, right? We have to overcome this hesitancy uh, for vaccines. Can you talk uh, a little bit more about that, particularly as you mentioned um, in some of your work about the dual pandemics of sort of flu, COVID-19, how do you overcome people's hesitancy in getting vaccinated? Yeah, I think that's a great question. Uh, I would, I've, I've thought about this quite a bit. I'm, I'm not sure that this dual pandemic of flu and COVID-19 is really going to pan out in the United States. We actually saw in Australia that uh, there is a fairly significant decrease in incidence of flu uh, during their winter. And I think part of that is because masking, uh, social distancing, uh, a lot of these things that we're doing to try to mitigate spread of COVID-19 also works for the flu. Now, in, in terms of getting vaccinated, I mean, I live in Boston. Uh, hospitals are requiring vaccination. So my, my job requires me to get the flu vaccine. And if I don't, I'm terminated. Um, so I, I, I received my flu vaccine. I'm likely to be one of uh, the first uh, few in line for the COVID-19 vaccine when it's ready. Uh, but I do worry about rural communities where they're not focusing on some of these mitigation strategies. They may be more reluctant to receive vaccines. Perhaps there isn't that uh, herd immunity from flu vaccines that you might see in in Boston. And you're talking about an additional vaccine. So I do think, uh, you know, I I tend to live in this urban bubble in Boston, and it's hard to really look outside of that to see what's happening in rural areas. But, But I've studied in rural areas. I've trained in rural areas. I know what those communities go through on a regular basis. And I recognize the the limitations of that infrastructure. So I, I am certainly concerned about a double pandemic happening in, in states like North Dakota, South Dakota, Wyoming, where the infrastructure is not nearly as great and the reluctance to, to vaccinate is certainly higher. 
And just to follow up, as Professor Lindsay Wiley has said on multiple occasions, the term lockdown is problematic. It's not an on and off switch. It's more of a dial. So what kind of public health messaging do we need um, to be able to get buy-in from some of these skeptics? Yeah, absolutely. I, I think I, I uh, 100% agree with Professor Wiley's uh, statement there. It's not an on-off switch. It really is a dial. And I think of the dial as going from zero to 100. 100 being normal daily life, pre-pandemic, no worries. And then zero being, you know, essentially a ghost town, nobody on the street. So in April, I think, uh, in especially in Boston, but in a number of other cities, New York City, um, Seattle, you saw people dialing down to maybe 25 or 20. You know, there was a pretty substantial restriction in in flow. But we're now at a point where the virus is far more widespread than it was in April. And I think in many places, we're still at a 50, 60, 70. And I think uh, you could see that in uh, the traffic for uh, Thanksgiving. Uh, there were reports from the, the Transportation Authority that, you know, traffic was down by maybe 20, 30 percent. But there was still a significant amount of traffic. Uh, there were reports of a number of a large family gatherings. So, so I think that's something to be concerned about. Um, in terms of selling, you know, the idea that we, we need a lockdown, it worked in France. So severe restriction on movement and uh, closing down major uh, economic drivers or major businesses. Uh, we saw essentially uncontrolled spread, a huge spike in cases in France, just precipitously drop essentially overnight. And that's because these measures really do work, but it, they work as long as you have buy-in from everybody. And so my concern is that with a 50-state approach to a pandemic and uh, governors in certain states that are reluctant to impose certain restrictions, I mean, even in Massachusetts, the schools have been closed uh, since the beginning of the year in many cases. Some have done a hybrid model. Some have been entirely closed. Restaurants and bars are still open. Indoor dining is still open in Massachusetts. So I think it's a matter of framing the issue differently. It's not that we're locking down restaurants. It's not that we're locking down bars. It's that we're restricting, we're doing more social distancing. We're limiting congregation of people. And just to follow up on that, thinking uh, for you, Evan, when we think about coming out of this pandemic, what are the things that we need to do to ensure that we have a better response, particularly in terms of PPE and masks? Yeah, I mean, thank you for the question. And I think I'll take that even more broad, broadly. You know, we need to invest in public health <laughs> and we need to invest in the basic infrastructure of public health at the local and the state level. Ultimately, I think whether it's lockdowns or vaccine hesitancy, um, you know, we can we can um, succeed um, in responding to those challenges with credible local champions. But there has to be an infrastructure in place and there has to be a sort of a history locally of really delivering public health resources. And we've so disinvested from public health in the United States that there is understandable skepticism at the local level in many instances. So the most important issue is, is reinvesting uh, in our public health infrastructure, but then also using this as an opportunity to reflect on healthcare delivery in the United States because you know, the, the the crisis has demonstrated many of the problems in the delivery of healthcare. Um, an overemphasis on efficiency, which has made us unable, uh, inflexible, uh, focus on profit-driven models. We just we've we've lost our resiliency and our ability to meet a challenge um, that's that puts us under any amount of strain. So I think back to fundamentals. Uh, investing in public health um, is is the key to to responding to all of these challenges. 
And for you, Michael, what do you think about uh, moving forward? You focused on particularly health professionals. What do we need to do after this crisis? Yeah, so I would just like to point out that during this crisis, I think that the primary thing we need to build up a state and local public health systems are federal funding. And that's because states are, are bound by budget. They don't have the access to, to overspend on these resources. Uh, we passed the CARES Act several months ago. Uh, a lot of those funds, nearly a, a half trillion in those funds have not been spent, are likely to be put back into the general fund of the U.S. Treasury, meaning that they can't be touched by the next administration. Uh, Congress seems deadlocked. They're not likely to pass additional funding soon. I think that's a real problem. Um, and I think funding, uh, you know, congressional funding signifies that the federal government is willing to support healthcare professionals. You know, we need a sign from our government that says, we support you, we support the work you're doing. You know, in New York City, the 7 p.m. Uh, clapping outside on the balconies, you know, thanking a healthcare hero, that only goes so far, right? So, so it needs to be more in terms of showing and proving than just simply congratulatory or, or you know, these types of uh, measures where it's simply saying thank you without acting upon that by, by doing more. I, th- I think that's what's needed at this point. Well, thank you. I so appreciate your comments and thoughtful discussion on these topics. Um, any last words, Evan? Um, yeah, sure. I'm, I'm, you know, there's been so much avoidable harm that, that I'm hopeful that we can, you know, we can do a much better job in the coming months. Um, you know, I think a, a vaccine isn't going to, to cure all of our problems. So we're going to need to continue to layer different um, prevention modalities on top of each other. And doing that means also coming to term with fatigue and, and being honest and continuing to improve the way we communicate and, and thinking about how the burdens also of some of these modalities are distributed. But I'm hopeful that we can certainly do better. Michael? Yeah, so so I'm certainly hopeful, although I'm skeptical that we're going to see a federal government intervention from now until uh, the inauguration. And so the real concern for me is is trying to sort out what we need to be doing as individuals. So staying home, uh, flattening the curve. I mean, that terminology was used in March and April, and it's been lost. The curve is not flat. The curve is spiking substantially. We need to get back to that mentality that we as individuals have a role in flattening the curve. And then the science of vaccine uh, production distribution, I hope, will will come in due time. But again, we, we absolutely cannot vaccinate and expect this problem to just go away. We, we have to do more than that. We have to stay vigilant. We have to continue these measures even beyond uh, the date that you and I or the three of us or, or communities are vaccinated. Uh, there's more to it. Than- well, thank you. Thank you to my guests and to all of you for listening today. We will be broadcasting here on Twitter every Tuesday and Thursday at noon. Just go to at PH Law Watch or search uh, slash COVID Law Briefing. Recordings are available on the Public Health Law Watch website and the shows are archived by the Week in Health Law podcast at www.twihl.com. The COVID-19 and policy briefings are produced by Faith Kalai, Summer Brown, and Liz Foyles. We'll see you next time. Please stay safe. Thank you.